Our reading this evening is from Romans, chapter 3, verse 21 to 31, and that's on page 1131 of the Church Bibles. Righteousness through faith. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, we are pursuing uh, a series, as you know, um, and we've come now to uh, this big issue it doesn't justify having a big sermon, but um, it is the, the whole uh, subject of uh, justification. It isn't something that comes up in everyday language among Christians, much less anywhere else. And yet it is pivotal, crucial to our faith. So what we are doing is this, uh, this series about how can we have assurance, how can we, we have confidence as Christian people. Uh, is it just... Uh, Auto-suggestion, some people have said, it's just wishful thinking. Or is there something objective, biblical, historical, eternal about our faith, which gives us confidence to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord? So, our heading is God justifies us freely by his grace. And thus far, it's been an interesting journey that we've had. We've looked at the way that God chose us. It's the word predestination, which we looked at. And uh, then last Sunday, God called us, uh, which refers to election. How does he do that? Through his word, as we hear his voice and respond in faith. And now we come to this third one, uh, which we are looking at. God justifies us. So we're looking at justification. I want to begin by quoting uh, the great John Stott. Listen to this as he begins a new section in the book of Romans. He says this. 
Uh, are you? Yeah, thank you. That's good. This is a, there's, there's the quote. All human beings of every race, of rank, every creed and culture, Jew and Gentiles, immoral or the moralizing, the religious or the irreligious, are without exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable and speechless before God. That's quite a terrible indictment upon us, apart from God's intervention. He does that to emphasize the opening uh, verse, as you have it there in the reading that Jack has just brought to us. And if you keep your Bibles open there, you come to this uh, phrase uh, in verse 21. But now... I well remember a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones who uh, he preached through the book of Romans uh, a year at a time uh, and got to chapter 12. And, um, uh, and this whole sermon was, but now, but now what? Well, the dark side of human nature. Look at the world. Look at life without the intervention of God. But now, look at life with his grace working in our lives. It's a, it's a powerful concept. So after the long dark night, the sun has risen and a new day has dawned because God has done something. He has taken the initiative. So Stotty just says this. So then, over against the unrighteousness of some and the self-righteousness of others, Paul sets the righteousness of God over against God's wrath resting on evildoers he sets God's grace to sinners who believe. Over against judgment, he sets justification. But now, but now. Well, uh, these great folk from the past uh, can say that uh, much better than I. But what I'm interested in tonight is to try to uh, briefly lay out uh, the lay of the land to see three um, main sort of headings that we can hang our thoughts on. So, we're thinking of justification. Let's divide that into three areas very quickly. The first, what's the source of it? What's the source of this, or our justification? And the answer we see is God's grace. It's a mighty river of grace that has come through Jesus Christ into mankind. That's the source and the second question to ask is this, well, what's the grounds? On what grounds are we justified? Is it wishful thinking or is there something very profound here? Well, of course, it's the mighty cross of Jesus Christ, as Paul makes reference to his blood that's been shed for us. And then finally, okay, so that's the source, here are the grounds, but what's the means by which we receive this? Well, of course, it's by faith in him. So there we are. That's where we're going. Very quickly then. Uh, the source of our justification, you have that in, in verse 24. Just read it here. Um, that we are justified freely by his grace. There it is. That's the phrase. That's what we're going to pursue for a moment. Now do remember this. When the New Testament mentions being justified... It means to be declared righteous. It's something God does. Something God does. And grace 
is the way that becomes effective to us. What, of course, has been defined as his unmerited favour. We don't deserve it and we can never merit it. We can't inherit it. Maybe you may have Christian parents or friends who pray for you, but you can't merit grace. It comes through God's intervention. And in that sense, then, the only hope for sinful people is grace. Grace. We could put it like this, that in these highly distilled verses, Paul's credo, his conviction, his belief is this. A. God does what he does always by grace. Even his judgment which is a reflection of his justice, he does by grace. So we have this marvelous verse, uh, one that I learned quite soon after becoming a Christian. For by grace you are saved. It's built into you. It's not that you're good or you're special. It is that God is gracious and God has done something. It is by grace you are saved. Now here's the implication. Be easy just to simply talk in a theological sense, and we're doing a bit of that, but here, this is the point. Okay, God does what he does by grace. Now then, grace means that I am a grateful person. To be an ungrateful believer is a walking contradiction. That's the point. And it's, in, a, in a way, you know, you could understand theologically and biblically justification and not be justified. You could win arguments about it and not be. And it's a good test, isn't it? Because in a way, grace makes me grateful. Amazing that he should do this. But now, but now, for me, now, God does, does what he does by grace. Well then, secondly, I am what I am by his grace and nothing else. Grace, then, does something in me. It makes me generous. Generous towards others. In the way I'm willing to give myself. In the way that I'm less self-centered. Grace makes me grateful. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourself. I... One of the things you discover when you come to a living faith in Jesus Christ, that you are not the center of the universe. And thirdly, thinking about God's grace and this act of his intervention in our lives, and this is the implication now, this grace means I let you be who you are by grace. I, I'm prepared to go through life accepting people who they are, not how I would like them to be, or making people like me, or only liking people who are like me. That's, that's the point. So what? Grace makes me more godly, more godlike. I take him with me to my school. I take him with me in my home and at work. The source of justification is grace. That's what he's saying. And so you have it there. Justified freely by his grace. Freely by his grace. 
So what we are really saying here is this, that yes, God takes the initiative. He's the first mover. And he came willingly in Jesus Christ, freely. The literal meaning of that word, freely by grace, is gratuitously. That's what he's like. God is gracious. And he says to us, this is my son whom I love. He takes away the sin of the world. He's going to be the Lamb of God. So, grace is God loving, God stooping, God giving himself in Jesus Christ. And so this dark background, you have this light that's beginning to shine through, but now, and there you have it in verse 21, a righteousness from God apart from the law, keeping rules if you like, whether they're human or religious or some other code, apart from that, a righteousness has been known. And of course the prophets testify to this. Okay, secondly, let's try to pursue this then. Um, What's the grounds of this? What's the foundation of this? As we think of ourselves as as, uh, Christian people uh, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the grounds for this is the cross. You, you, let's, let, just to, to, to read on here in verse uh, 24 and 25. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Read on. God presented himself as a sacrifice of atonement through faith. In his blood, shed on the cross. But also here, there's the language, not just of that, but of an exchange. It's it's the language of uh, the the Old Testament, of this idea of, yes, the sacrificial lamb, but something else, of the scapegoat idea. The high priest, only once, ever, ever in his life, would symbolically be the representative to bring the sin of the nation on the Day of Atonement. And a goat would be killed. And then uh, uh, somebody would be chosen to go out into the wilderness, beyond the camp as it's called. But before that the priest would confess the sins of the nation on the head of the goat. And then, of course, the psalmist takes it up. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Can you imagine um, the, the children of Israel seeing that in symbolic form and watching going out and out and out, out of sight, never to be seen again. It's the cross. Jesus becomes our scapegoat, our substitute. And that's the sort of implied language that you have here. The grounds of our justification is the cross. So let's ask a question. And this is now a dilemma, if you like, the divine dilemma. And it's this. That being so, how can God justify sinners freely? On what grounds can he declare you and I, unrighteous people, to be righteous and at the same time not compromise his righteousness? How can he do that? Now, I know it's a big theological issue. God is just. How does he justify the ungodly? How can he do that? 
And God's answer is, look at the cross. Look at the cross. So that he can justify us freely on the basis of Jesus who, who has come into this world to be our scapegoat, our substitute. It is, it is a staggering statement. Just flick over one page, just to Romans 4. And let me just read uh, two verses, but the, uh, verse 5 is more crucial. Okay, stay with this. I know it's, these are big issues, right? Romans 4, verse 4. It's an illustration, and we know this well. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credit to him as a gift, but as an obligation. If you've worked all the week and you have your wages, you're expecting them. You don't say, what a lovely gift. This is yours by right. You've worked. You've earned it. It's yours. However, look at the contrast. It's just an illustration. The man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. It's put to your account, credited to you. Credit. It's an interesting, staggering statement. God justifies the wicked. But how can he do that? I want you to turn to one verse in the book of Proverbs. Because here's a contradiction, if you stay on the face of it. The book of Proverbs, and it's, there you are, it's come up in front of you, 17, verse 15. Just read it to you so that... You may want to think about this. This is what God's word says. Proverbs 17, 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both. But now in Romans, he's doing that. What a contradiction. How can God do what his word forbids others to do? How can he stay righteous and not contradict his own righteousness? Is this inconsistent? Is this preposterous? Is this absurd? That he would deny his own moral nature, his own justice, and compromise that? Well, of course, the answer is, he could only do it on the grounds of the cross. There is no other way. So he justifies us, and yet at the same time stays just. Now, as you'll appreciate, there's been a lot of... Uh, discussion about that and, and, and debate within great theologians. He does it on the, on the grounds that he can put to our account that we are justified freely. It's a wonderful thing. Apart from the cross to justify the unjust is immoral. It is a divine scandal. 
That's a very serious thing to say in a Christian pulpit, isn't it? Just say it again. Apart from the cross, to justify the unjust is immoral. But when you come to Romans 3, verse 21, but now, but now, and that's the answer. It's, it's quite something, isn't it? And in a moment we're going to break bread and we'll remind ourselves of the cross. What God did through the cross, that is through his death, three expressions come to us. The first, God justifies us, as it says here in verse 24, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. He did that. Secondly, now then, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. And thirdly, he did this to demonstrate his justice. All three of these statements are references to the impact of the gospel as it is proclaimed through his blood we have forgiveness and lastly and obviously these are just broad brushstrokes really aren't they um, we come to this uh, the means by which this comes to us and here it is. It's by faith. And if you stay with these verses, and it's highly distilled logic, you can see that, but three times here the term faith is mentioned. You see there you have it in verse 22, 25, and 26. And this is pivotal because we are not passive. Yes, God takes the initiative, but here now the divine initiative, the human response, and it's faith. And three times the necessity of faith is emphasized. Do you see it there? Verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus. How did you become a Christian? You say it, by faith in Jesus. That's how you became. You may have been blessed with uh, Christian parents. You may not. You may have people who prayed for you. Maybe not. But it's through faith in Jesus. And then, you, you see in verse 25, it's through faith in his blood. In Jesus, in what sense? In his mighty cross, his, his intervention. And then, you see that again. Verse 26, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So the value or the merit is not found in faith, however. It isn't that somebody say to you, look, you, you, you've got to have faith. Or, uh, somebody will say to you, as they said to me, uh, I wish I had your faith. Or somebody will, has said to me, I, I well remember, if I become a Christian, I, I, I won't keep it up. I said, no, you won't keep it up, nor can you. As if somehow this is a New Year's resolution and you're going to work very hard at it. How absurd is that? 
nor you won't keep it up. But faith in Jesus, in his ongoing work of grace in your life, he will. And together you, you, you're, you're on this journey of faith with all of its setbacks. So the value or the merit is not found in faith as if somehow we've got to stir it up in ourselves. But entirely and exclusively in the object of that faith. Not in faith in faith. And the object of that faith is Jesus Christ. You can't stir up this faith. You look at the cross. You hear this message. You see the intervention of God. And you trust in Jesus Christ. It's in him. In Jesus. So faith's vital function is to receive what grace offers. Do you see that? We will sing as a closing uh, hymn. This hymn which, be, which has helped so many people before the throne of God to have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives for me and so on. Let me end where we began. Talking about justification, and this is where we end. Justification then is not a process. In a few weeks' time, we will look at sanctification. That is a process. There are some people who are more Christ-like, some Christians less so. Some people exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. Some you hardly see any at all. They are Christian people. There are degrees of that. There are no degrees of justification. You're justified or you're not. There are no degrees of it. Each believer has the same standing before God. Him writer is right, isn't he? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And Jesus illustrates this well. Just turn to uh, Luke's Gospel. Because it's in a, in a, in a parable that perhaps is some, somewhat misunderstood. Just try to think now of, um, of this idea of faith and justification. So, in Luke's Gospel, I don't think this is coming up there. No, it isn't. So, sorry, Luke chapter 18. And um, I haven't got this down in my notes. Isn't that something? I, yes, it's Luke 18 and verse 9. There you are. That's it. So, it's just a little extra which, uh, uh, as a conclusion to the sermon. Okay. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And before we read it, Jesus reverses the thinking, turns everything upside down. But why is he doing it? Look carefully at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, this is the theme that we're looking at, who had justified themselves, aren't I good? Look at me. And look down on everybody else, of course. Jesus told this parable. It's a very scathing, radical, 
shocking parable. Turning around, everybody's thinking upside down. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Well, it's good to pray. What, what are you praying about? Well, the Pharisee stood up, prayed about himself. He's the center of God's attention. God wouldn't manage without him. You know, it's that type of thinking. And there are Christians sometimes think like that. So he prays. So far, so good. How does he pray? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Well, that would be a good thing. I wish I could do that. Nothing wrong with fasting twice a week. Give a tenth of all I get. That's a good thing to do too. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay. So far, so good. They've gone home. They've had Sunday lunch. Right. What's the conclusion of it? Verse 14. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, the latter, not the former, went home justified before God. That's what we're talking about. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The hymn writer puts it like this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's what it means to be a justified sinner. That's what it means. God justifies the ungodly through his grace by the cross and we respond in faith to what he has done. I hope we can do that as we come to the Lord's table and as part of our preparation in doing so we